0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Wow, well, you guys sound alive this morning. Awesome, awesome. My name is Rich. I want to say it's great to have you out today. And uh, um, if you're a guest, just hope that you feel right at home. want to let you know a, a couple things that are happening uh, just around CTK Ferndale over the next couple months. The best way, actually, to find out what's happening is through this uh, program. There's some available at the back door there on your way in, but it has all the information on stuff that's coming up, and uh, also inside there, you're going to find a blue connection card. If you are interested in in getting connected in a small group, interested maybe in helping serve around our church, um, the way to start that is uh, by grabbing that blue connection card and just letting us know what it is that you want to know or a step that you want to take, any of that kind of stuff, that's uh, the the blue connection card. Um, We were actually... uh, we had a baptism service planned for April, and I uh, just want to let you know that we are actually kind of pushing that out down the calendar a little further. We're going to be having a baptism service on June 11th now, and so if you are a, uh, you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, you're a, you're, you are a Christian, and you haven't been baptized, June 11th is your day, okay? So mark that on your calendar, and uh Um, Again, the way to start that process uh, is through that blue connection card or you can actually also go out in the commons and grab a baptism form and uh, let us know that you'd like to be baptized and we'll get in touch with you and let you know um, everything that's happening from there. Um, Yesterday there was a women's conference here at our church. Yeah, awesome. Some ladies were able to make it. I just want to say a big thank you to everybody that was able to help put that on. I heard there was, was somewhere in the vicinity of 15 Uh, ladies that kind of came together to put that on and just make sure that the ladies that came were loved on and cared for. Um, She's not here this morning, but Melissa Elsner just did a tremendous job of of making that happen. So um, just make sure you say thank you to her at some point in the near future. That would be super cool. I have got some exciting, exciting news to announce this morning. Before I do that, I just want to say a couple of things. So it If you've been around here for any length of time, you know that we are a church that's on a mission. We are a church that doesn't just believe that God put us here in Ferndale to twiddle our thumbs and be a holy huddle, be all about doing our own little thing. We believe that God has us here to take the hope that's in Jesus, the resurrected King, take that hope to our neighbors, to our community, to our county, and wherever God might lead us. The the good news that we have is too good to just keep to ourselves, isn't it? And so we want to be about taking Jesus wherever we can. We want to be about making disciples of Jesus who will go and make disciples, help people experience the joy of salvation, a purposeful life of following him. But to do all of that, a key piece in making that happen is leadership. And some of you know that over the last several months, we have been praying uh, that God would bring a a leader to our church who can – who could come alongside and, and help lead us in this, this mission that we're on? Well, I am super stoked to announce this morning that God has provided, and uh, we have a, a new guy that's going to be joining our staff team. His name is Eric Young, and I'm actually going to invite Eric to come up here on the, join me up here on the stage. Why don't you show Eric some love this morning? Let him know you're glad to see him. So this is, this is Eric. And here's a picture of his his wife, Savannah, and their three adorable kids. And uh, Eric is going to be officially joining our team on May 1st, and his first Sunday with, with his family here will be on uh, May the 7th, but uh, super excited to have this guy here. And maybe you're going, he seems like a familiar face. He probably is. Eric is a, he's actually a Ferndale guy. He graduated from Ferndale High School back in 2005. Um, he has been... That's a while ago. I yeah, I was 92, so no, that's not a long time ago. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> but, but he, gra- so he's a Ferndale guy. He's been on staff in a couple of churches here in the county. He was on staff over at Good News Fellowship on Axton for a couple years with Bill Coogler. Um He was, uh, uh, or is, on staff at North Bay CTK with uh, Dan McAvoy. So, and he's one of those guys that's just, he's around. Like, he just kind of, he pops up everywhere. And so, uh, but. But Eric is not, he, he's, he's familiar with Ferndale and familiar, he's been a part of the CTK story now for uh, a while. But um, Eric, I've known Eric for several years and him and I have been having some conversations over the last uh, couple months and we've been having conversations with our network team and with Dan over in North Bay to just see if this is something that God might be working in and um, it's been really cool to see God open, open some doors. And so uh, Eric's role is going to be, he's going to be actually overseeing um, uh, a number of different ministries in our church. He's going to be overseeing our next generation ministry. So he's going to be overseeing students and overseeing kids. And then he's also going to be overseeing our worship ministry and our guest services ministry. And, and if you're going, uh, how, how is one guy going to do all that? Well, Eric's role is going to be a little different. He's actually going to be um, uh, a uh, pastor that's that's going to be developing leaders and devel- developing teams. So Eric's not going to be the guy. He's not going to be up here on stage with a guitar every week. He's not going to be in kid's rock room uh, leading lessons and all that kind of stuff. Eric's gifting and his passion um, is, is really to be the, the behind-the-scenes guy, developing leaders, developing teams, and just really helping you, the church, um, find out how God has gifted you and help you just get involved in whatever it is that God has for you and so uh, I think I've said it already but I'll say it again I'm really excited and uh, I, I just Eric is going to be a real gift to our church and community yeah awesome so I got to say so so this is actually Eric has had a crazy morning because part of this whole uh, transition that's happening here um, uh, uh, one of the guys a family that's been a part of our church for the past several months um, Tyler and Bonnie Mitchell. Um, Tyler is actually going to be—he's uh, going to be transitioning out of our church, and he's going to be going on staff with North Bay. And so they are announcing the Eric transition and the Tyler transition in North Bay today, as well as us over here. So Eric was here at 8:30 this morning. As soon as we announced him, he went out, got in his car, and drove over to North Bay for their 9:30 service, and then he was announced there back over here for 10 o'clock, then he got in his, his vehicle again, went back over there for there 11 o'clock, and guess what? He's back here now. So how you doing with all that? Good. Awesome, awesome. But I would actually just love it if you could pray with me for Eric and uh, just pray that God will work through him and God will empower him. Um, the task that's in front of him is a it's a big job, and, uh, and I actually, I, I think that, Stepping into a place that that is outside of ourselves and bigger than ourselves is actually a good thing. Because that just keeps us dependent on God and just going, Jesus, we need you. But whenever God leads us somewhere, um, he he always equips, doesn't he? He always empowers. And so I would just love it if you could pray with me for Eric. And uh, not only for us, uh, for Eric and and Ferndale, but even for North Bay and what God's up to over there as, as well. Um, So let's let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Eric. God, thank you so much for the work that you're doing in his life. God, thank you for the work that you're doing in his family. Jesus, we just are, God, humbled to be a part of what you are up to. God, here in Ferndale, North Bay, our county, God, you are up to something incredible. And God, sometimes I, I feel like we just catch little glimpses of it. But God, I think it's bigger than anything that we could even imagine. But Lord, I just want to thank you for uh, bringing Eric on this team. God, I thank you, Jesus, for the way that you have gifted him with uh, just uh, a, a leadership. God, I thank you for his passion that he has for you, Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the way he loves people. And just once with all of his heart, God, to see people living out their, their, their passions and their giftings and getting on board with this mission that you've given us to go and make disciples of all nations. God, thank you for all that. And, Lord, I just want to pray that Jesus, as he transitions into this this new role, that that Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, you come right alongside of him and just equip him. God, may even this week, Jesus, he just have this deep, abiding peace that, Jesus, you're going to be his help, God, as he launches into this this new role. And, Lord, I pray, dear Lord, that that you would just walk alongside of him and Savannah and their, their kids, Jesus, in this transition. I pray, Father, that they would just know that you're with them, that God, they'd have a peace about this. God, I also want to lift up Tyler and Bonnie and and their family, God, as they make this transition. I pray, God, that you would also make yourself known to them. That God, you'd be Tyler's help. That Jesus, you you would you would just make yourself known to them and, and their family, God, as they transition into North Bay. And God, I just I just love it that we are part of a church, part of a movement that that operates like we do. And God, I just think it's so cool, and Lord, I just pray, God, that, that the work that you're doing through this this movement that we call CTK, God, may it just advance, God, may you uh, work through us to make your name famous, God, you, may you work through us, God, to make broken hearts, God, hearts that are captive, God, healed and free, God, I pray that your name would just be made known in a greater way than it ever has been before, and so, Lord, we just love you, and and thank you so much for the work that you're up to. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody set. amen, amen. amen. So one more thing to let you know about before Eric gets off the stage. His role is actually going to be a, a multi-site role. So uh, this is a, a kind of a new thing that we we haven't done, at least not to my knowledge, as a CTK network, where Eric's going to be 75% with us, and then he's still um Doing some things with North Bay, and he's going to be twenty five percent over there. So, um, so, but on May seventh, him and his family will be kind of will be making Ferndale their home church. But uh, he's going to be kind of all over the, all over the map, um, doing a bunch of different things. So, but Eric, excited to have you, man. Thank awesome you. stuff. Very cool. All right, we are uh, jumping in this morning to a brand new series called In Defense of Christianity, and I just want to start off by, by asking you this morning, does anybody, who, who in the room wasn't alive on June 17th, 1994? Raise your hand nice and high. If you weren't alive on June 17th, come on, nice and high. I'm not going to embarrass you. Cool. So that's probably about, I don't know, maybe a, a third of the room wasn't alive on June 17th, 1994. Chances are, even if you weren't alive, you might remember that day. Um, It was one of the most unusual days, actually, in modern history. Just four days prior, two people had been brutally murdered. And on June 17th, the Los Angeles Police Department was told to be on the lookout for a white Ford Bronco. Do you remember what happened on that day now? Yes. Um, Inside of the Ford Bronco was the murder suspect, and he was... Uh, the most famous, one of the most famous football legends of all time, none other than O.J. Simpson. And it was nearly five hours before the Bronco was spotted. And when police caught up to it, it would lead to what was the most bizarre and infamous police car chase in all of history. The northbound 405 lane of the, uh, uh, lane of the 405 freeway was shut down as around 20 police cars followed the white bronco in like a flying geese f- uh, V formation. And uh, it it became it was covered on all three of the major networks. They, they just canceled all their regular uh, programming and went to the car chase. Um, NBC, which at the time was broadcasting game five of the NBA finals, actually put game five up in the top right corner of the TV so they could show the car chase on their... their their, their programming. It was so big that pizza deliveries for Domino, Domino's Pizza were just as big during the car chase as they had been for Super Bowl Sunday. It was this national drama in the making. While well, the chase would come to an end at around 8 p.m. with Simpson pulling into his home and later surrendering, and that would in turn lead to what was known and still is known to this day as the trial of the century. Simpson in his own words, would plead absolutely 100% not guilty. Nevertheless, it appeared for the prosecution like this was going to be a slam-dunk case. The, the evidence pointing to, to, to Simpson's guilt, it was a mountain of evidence, and they thought this was going to be the easiest case they'd ever done, I mean, there was the Bronco getaway with the passport inside, the $8,000 cash, the fake goatee, the mustache. There was the the lady who, who saw Simpson speed away from the murder victim's house the night of the murders. There was all the DNA matches. And then, of course, there were the gloves. Two bloody gloves. One found at Simpson's home. One found at one of his victims' home. Both gloves matched. Both gloves could be traced to Simpson. Both gloves were mixed with the DNA of Simpson and his two victims. But as you know, you, uh, the, this is how the verdict went. O.J. Simpson was pronounced innocent on all charges. And uh, from day one of the trial, things kind of started to go a little bit sideways for the prosecution. Much of the evidence was just tossed out. It was deemed inadmissible. Um, some of the key witnesses went and sold their stories to to the tabloids, and so they didn't use any of that. Um, Other pieces of evidence, like the glove and the DNA, Uh, DNA was brand new back in 1994, and so for the jury, it just wasn't super convincing. But perhaps what did the case in, more than anything else, had nothing to do with the evidence. It didn't have anything to do with the defense's case. It didn't have anything to do with all the mistakes that the prosecution made in, in the trial. But perhaps what did the case in the most were the preconceptions the jurors brought into the trial. You see, O.J. Simpson, one of the most, back in the day, one of the most famous uh, people, most well-recognizable faces in America, and, and, and people looked at O.J., and they're like, this guy is, I mean, he's a nice guy. He's got that, that million-dollar smile. He's friendly. He's popular. Everyone even had an affectionate nickname for O.J. For they called him the juice. And, and, and was the juice really capable of doing such a horrible thing? And not only were there ideas about OJ's ca- uh, character before the trial began, but there were also ideas and preconceptions about the motives of the L.A. police. You see, at that time, the L.A. police had a notorious reputation for being very, very racist. It was uh, just in the last year that the whole Rodney King thing had gone down, and different things that happened in the police department that were just, that, that were actually racist. And so, as a juror, if you saw police as good guys, then you most likely believe that they imbe- investigated the case fairly and, and honestly. But if you saw police as being bad guys, then you most likely believe that they were doing everything in their power to frame O.J. Simpson. And in the end, it didn't matter how strong the evidence was because. Now, this is Rich's humble opinion. All the ideas, the preconceptions that the jury brought into the trial affected their ability to simply allow the evidence to speak for itself. And in Western culture, more than ever, Christianity is being placed on trial. At one time, almost all Americans believed in the existence of God. That number is, is actually increasing um, more people are denying the existence of God. They just don't believe it. Not only is belief in God trending downward, but the number of people who believe in the Christian faith is also going down. Years ago, at least in our country, you just believed in God, and you just believed in the Bible because that's what your parents believed in. That's what your grandparents believed in. Your great-grandparents, they just all believed that way. So you're like, I, I, I believe that way too. You just kind of accepted it. That's not the case anymore. And today more than ever, people are asking many questions about the validity of Christianity. People just don't blindly accept it as truth. And so some of the questions that are being asked are, where's the evidence that God is real? And the argument goes that if I can't see him, if I can't touch him, if I can't hear him, um, then he doesn't exist. He's just a myth. He's just the figment of someone's imagination. He was created way back in the day. Um, Some people just conjured him up. Or like John Lennon said, he's he's a concept. Other questions people ask are, how can Christianity be right and all the other religions be wrong? How is that possible? We're going to dive into that one next week. Another question is, how can miracles be possible when they go against the basic laws of nature? Or what about evil and suffering? So even if Christianity is true, why did God have to come along and put that tree of good and evil in the middle of the garden in the first place? Why do he have to give them that de- the decision to make? Because if he just didn't do that, if he didn't give them that choice, there wouldn't be world wars, there wouldn't be Holocaust, there wouldn't be teenage suicide, there wouldn't be cancer. Wh- what's up with this evil and suffering thing? Why doesn't God just put a stop to it? Another question that people have is, is doesn't evolution do a good enough job of explaining the reason for everything? And this is just a small sampling of the que- questions being asked. There's, there are many, many more and so, this series is really going to be about just two things. First, um, is, it's about helping believers build a solid defense for their faith. The evidence backing the existence of God, the reality of Jesus and his re- resurrection, the evidence backing the authority of Scripture is actually really, really strong. The problem is that most Christians just don't know it. And so, when, when someone starts to kind of poke holes in their Christianity, and, and arguing from a position that has no backing, our, our, we just kind of crumble. William Wilberforce, he, he was a, an English politician and leader in the 18th and 19th centuries. He said something that I think is just so true. He said, Christianity has been successfully attacked and marginalized. Because those who professed belief were unable to defend the faith from attack, even though its attackers' argu- arguments were deeply flawed. The Bible says that we are not to go through life ignorant. Rather, we should always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. We're to have an answer. We're to know. And like I said, the evidence supporting the existence of God, um, it's, it's very strong. And for us defending the Christian faith, really, when you understand all the evidence and how much there is, it should be a slam dunk case, but because many Christians don't know about all the evidence, they often lose when it comes to defending their faith. And and I think that this is particularly tragic when it comes to Christian students that head off to college. You see, they've been raised just to kind of blindly accept their faith, and then the moment that they they run into a another student, or or some uh, professor. Who, who has some solid questions and is making some good arguments, all of a sudden their faith is just shattered. And it makes sense for, for children to be able to stand on the shoulders of their, their parents' faith and to know, um, just to kind of stand there. But at some point, as they begin to reach adulthood, it's important to figure out what this thing is all about for yourself. Students, it's so cool to look out and see so many students in the room this morning. It is important for you to be able to, to grasp what your faith is all about, and, and figure out some of the questions because you're going to be asked some some big questions. And this series is about helping you have a solid defense um, for your faith. I think sometimes the reasons that we don't ask questions about our faith is because we're afraid of what we'll find out. We're afraid that if we dig uh, deep into our faith that maybe the, we'll see the foundation as weak. Or maybe we might... Uh, discover that truth that we believe is, is actually a little shaky and it's it, or maybe even a lie. But you don't need to be afraid to press into your faith um, to figure out what's truth and what's not. And, and let me explain why. One of the, uh, there's, there's a number of different authors and teachers and pastors that I've been just kind of grabbing all their stuff in preparation for this series. And one of the guys, his name is Richard, Bro- or Rice Brooks. And uh, he says something about truth that, that is so important. He compares truth to a beach ball. Now remember as, as a kid, you go to the lake, you go to the beach, and you bring out the beach ball, and you, you toss it around on the beach, and then you head on the water, and you start whacking it back and forth. Well, if you're anything like me, at some point you go, okay, I, I want to see if I can put, push this beach ball under the water. And so you try to push it down into the water, but it keeps wanting to, to, to pop back up. And so what do you do? You grab some of your friends and maybe you dog pile on top of that beach ball to make it go down. And you can actually suppress it, put it down under the water for a time. But what's eventually going to happen? It's going to pop back up to the surface. Truth works much the same way. You can try to suppress it all you want. You can try to push it down. But how truth works is eventually it pops back up to the surface because it's truth. It's truth. Which leads to the second reason we're doing this series, and that's to provide some answers. If you're here this morning and you're a doubter, maybe you're a cynic, maybe you're just really skeptical about Christianity, or, or even you, you just maybe flat out deny the existence of, of God, I just want to say you've come to the right place. You've come to the right place because we're going to be asking and answering a lot of the big questions about the existence of God and some of the tr- tough truth of Scripture in this series, and I want you to know that this is a safe place to have doubts, to have questions. It is a safe place to just kind of to be a little cynical and to be to question everything that we say we believe. And and I want to tell you that that I believe that God is okay with your questions. And uh, to show you that God's okay with, with questions, I want to read a well-known passage from the Bible, where we see Jesus interacting with a doubter and just to give you some context to this story um it takes place about a week after jesus has been resurrect- resurrected um uh, jesus has actually already appeared to several pe- people including the disciples and uh however when he first appeared to the to the disciples after his resurrection there was one disciple who wasn't in the room at the time and he was a guy named thomas and listen to what happens. The Bible says this. It says, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the, 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 other, the other disciples, told God, I can't talk this morning. I'm so excited to get this all out. Okay. <laughs> breathe. Breathe. <laughs> so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord! Exclamation mark. I mean, they're stoked. They've seen Jesus. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And as a result of Thomas's unbelief, he, he has for the last 2,000 years been known as Doubting Thomas. Thomas does not make the Bible's Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. He doesn't make the cut. <laughs> but think about this. There are some in here this morning... And if not in here, at least in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, um, who are just like Thomas. The disciples, they're all excited about having seen Jesus. They're pumped about their faith. I mean, they're devoted. They've they've seen Jesus. They're convinced. And Thomas is like, so what? So what? Until I see some evidence, I'm not going to believe a thing. And some of you in here today, you might be thinking yeah, 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 I know all of you Christians, you make all these claims about Christianity. You say that you've seen Jesus. You say that you've healed. he's healed you. You say that, that he's, he, he speaks to you. You say all this stuff. He's alive. That's great. But I wasn't there. I haven't seen him. In fact, all I've seen is the opposite. He hasn't shown himself to me. He, hasn't, he wasn't there for me. He wasn't there for my family. Um, on top of that, some guy coming back from the dead is medically and scientifically impossible Unless I see some proof, unless I see some evidence, I will not believe. And Thomas is a cynic. He's a doubter. And, and there's, just, there's a couple things that I find really interesting about this passage. But one of them is the silence of the other disciples at this point. Thomas says, I will not believe. And then the disciples say, nothing. At least it's not recorded in the Bible if they do. But there's, it looks like they say nothing. They don't rebuke Thomas. They don't get mad at him. There's nothing in, uh, recorded in the Bible about them telling Thomas that, that he needs to leave, that they can't be around him because he's starting to rattle their really shaky faith that they've got. There's none of that. And, and, and listen, church, I believe that like, we need to become more like the disciples and, and have the same kind of response that they have with Thomas and be okay with questions and not get so defensive and so uptight. You know, it's one thing to defend your faith with confidence. It is an entirely different thing to become oversensitive and prickly about it when someone calls your faith into question. Becoming oversensitive when someone has a different opinion or a different view than you do is not actually not the Christian way, it's the world's way. As we have seen on full display the last couple years, on both a political and cultural level. It may be the world's way to get offended when you have someone who believes differently than you, but it is certainly not the Christ-like way. If you get mad and offended because people don't believe the way that you do, it actually says a whole lot more about your faith and character than it does your friends. Can you imagine this morning if if, 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 uh, you you question whether or not I'm wearing jeans and a t-shirt? You can say you don't believe me. You can even say that, that you need more proof. But am I going to get mad at you and offended and upset? Not really. Because I'm pretty convinced right now that I'm wearing jeans and a t-shirt. I'm just going to help you understand. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to show you some of the evidence. I'm going to say, hey, put your hand on my jeans. Um, here's the shirt. It's, it's right here. I'm actually wearing it. I'm going to talk through it in a calm way. And this gets back to the scripture we just read about. this. It's about responding with gentleness and respect. Those with questions about our faith might be a whole lot more open to discussion if we just respond with calm. Reasoning with, other, reasoning with the other side rather than denouncing the other side opens the door for understanding, opens the door for dialogue, for conversation, whereas when you get your back up, it just shuts all that down. So Thomas, he doubts, and the disciples do nothing. They don't push Thomas away. In fact, they do just the opposite. The Bible goes on to say, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and look who's with them. Thomas was with them. He's he's hanging out. He's still doubting. He still has his questions. He's still a cynic. but, But there he is. The disciples just appear to be totally okay with Thomas being there with all of his doubt and all of his questions. And the next we, re- we read that though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, he looks at Thomas and says, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And I absolutely love this about Jesus. Last uh, summer we... I did a message called just on sincere doubt. We kind of dove into this a little bit where Jesus doesn't look at Thomas in a condescending way. He doesn't kind of frown down at Thomas. He doesn't get mad at Thomas. He's not defensive and prickly about the whole deal. Instead, he invites Thomas to come close. It's like he says, hey, Thomas, I have some evidence I want you to see. Here I am, and here's the scars in my hands check out my side, I'm the real deal, reach out your hand, feel for yourself, and if you are here today and you're a doubter, skeptic, cynic, or outright denier of the Christian faith, Jesus' response to you is the same today. Rather than be upset or offended by our doubts and questions, Jesus lovingly invites us to take a closer look. Come check out the evidence, he says. There's plenty of proof that I'm the real deal. Bring me all your questions. Bring me all your doubts. Let me show you. And and throughout the rest of this series, that's exactly what we'll be doing. We're going to be answering questions, looking at the mountain of evidence backing the Christian faith. And my hope and prayer for for, for us is it'll be like we're, we're taking our seat on the jury, listening to all the questions being answered and all the evidence that's being presented over the next several weeks, and that you'll be able to come up with the right, verdict, that you'll be able to make a solid decision on whether or not the God of the Bible is real. But to come up with the right verdict, there are important things that you need to do. And most of these things are the same things that any good jury needs to do in order to discover the truth. To begin with, you need to open your heart to the possibility that God exists and that the claims of Christianity are valid. Before any trial takes place that involves a jury— what happens? You have, you have the whole jury selection process where the defense and the prosecution, what they do is they, they, they get all the, the potential jurors in a room, and they, they ask different questions. They try to figure out where they're at, if they're going to be the right um, jurors to be on this trial. And, and can you imagine, like just use the O.J. Simpson case, for example. Can you imagine if they have all those jurors, potential jurors in the room, during the selection process, and they get one of them up on the stand, and one of them says, I don't care what evidence I see. I don't care uh, what, what the defense is. I, I don't care any of that kind of stuff. In my opinion, he's 100% guilty. Not, you're not going to change my mind. Guess what? They are going to ask that potential juror to leave the room because they are not an ideal candidate to be a part of this, this trial. Um, wh- whether it's a murder, murder trial or putting God on trial, the best jurors are those who keep an open heart to both sides of the argument. You have to open up your heart to the possibility that God exists. Next to come up with the right verdict, you need to trade in your preconceptions for an an attempt at objectivity. Let me just unpack that a little bit. Whether it's a jury in a murder trial or a jury putting the Christian faith on trial, if you can't put your preconceptions aside, you will not be able to stay neutral and objective. You'll bring in all your ideas and all your your thoughts and, and, it'll, and it will cloud your judgment. A jury can't be object, or a jury that can't be objective is not a good jury because they won't be able to land on the right verdict. They'll see everything through this this lens. And there are students in the room today who, who have uh, doubts about God because they've heard some strong arguments from some really smart students. Or from some, some really smart teachers. And they got all this, this negative stuff about God because of what they've heard. Others in the room, you've read books. You've read articles from guys like uh, Richard Dawkins or Stephen Hawking. These well-known atheists. Some of the most brilliant minds on the planet. And it's, it's, you've got all these preconceptions as a result. Others have heard parents and others you respect who deny the ex- existence of God. Or maybe you're in the room today and life has just gone sideways for you. And it's been, it's been difficult, there's been a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, and, and now because of that, you've got these preconceptions, these ideas about who God is or isn't. And, and, and to be a great juror, you've got to put your preconceptions aside. And when you begin to set your, your preconceptions aside, you just might begin to see things in a whole new light. Next, in order to come up with the right verdict, you need to allow the evidence to speak for itself. Allow the evidence to speak for itself. Um, there have been a m- mountain of books written on the O.J. Simpson um, case. And even this this last year, the, uh, the documentary that won the, the Oscar for Best Documentary was The People versus O.J. Simpson. It's kind of like coming back again. But there's been all this, all this study and all, all these movies, all this kind of stuff. But one of the big issues for the jury in the O.J. Simpson trial was a man named Mark Furman. Remember Mark Furman? Some of you do, yeah. Um, uh, He was one of the the first guys on the scene. He was a key investigator. He was also a man who had said some very racist things in the past. And many people who who have studied this trial believe that this became a huge distraction from this mountain of evidence. This guy who had said all these racist things, it kind of didn't. No longer was the evidence just speaking for itself. All of a sudden, here's this other guy that's just kind of being blown up um, in the media and everything, and it just it dis- it distracted from the case. And, and so often when it comes to looking at the Christian faith, people have a hard time getting past whatever hang-ups they might have with, with God. There's things that distract them from looking at the, at the mountain of evidence. Maybe those hang-ups have to do with how life has been difficult, and it, just, it distracts you from looking at the evidence of, just of who God is, or maybe the hangups o- over here are, are, are just some unanswered questions that you just can't wrap your mind around, and so it distracts you from the evidence. Dinosaurs, there's not really a really great answer for what happened with dinosaurs. There's not really a great answer for how old the earth is. There's not really a great answer for, 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 for the, the, the big question of, of pain and suffering. So you've got all these different things over here that are distracting you from the evidence. And if you want the right verdict, though, you have to push your personal hang-ups aside. And we're going to be looking at some of these things, but you've got to push aside your your hang-ups and simply let the evidence speak for itself. And then lastly, and this just might be the most important thing to do if you want to come up with the right verdict on the Christian faith. You need to invite God to show you that He's real. And this is kind of what Thomas actually does in this story. Here's this guy. He's, everybody's excited about God. Everybody's ex- excited about who he, what Jesus being alive. And Thomas is like, okay, unless I see proof, unless I see proof, I'm not going to believe. And, and really what he's kind of indirectly doing is saying, I, I need somebody to show me. And I challenge you, if you're here today and you're a doubter, if, if you sincerely want to know, um, whether or not the claims of Christianity are real, I challenge you to pray this prayer. God, if you're real, would you please show me? And maybe you're going, well, why in the world would I even pray that prayer because I don't even really believe that he exists? Well, if you don't believe that he exists, you've got nothing to lose anyways. But I challenge you to pray that prayer. God, if you're real, would you please show me? Rice Brooks, this this author that I mentioned earlier, um, who – who, all he really does is defend the Christian faith. Um, his book, God's Not Dead, became the content for this movie. But um, he, one of the things that he loves to do is he loves to go on, on university campuses, and he loves just to talk to, 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 um, to, to students just about Christianity and about God, and he loves to debate and answer uh, any questions that they, might, that they might have. And he says something that's, that's really interesting. He says this. He says, I have been challenged repeatedly on university campuses. And here's the challenge that he gets. You're going to have to prove to me that God exists and Christianity is true. And, and then he, he responds, this is his response. If I do, will you believe in, will, if I believe, will, or if I do, will you believe in him and follow Christ? He asks this question when people challenge him. You've got you to show me, show me some evidence. Well, if I do, will, will you believe and follow Christ? And when they say no, I respond like this. Your problem is not a lack of information. If you have all your questions answered and still don't believe, then your real problem is spiritual, not intellectual. It's spiritual, not intellectual. So my challenge to you today, doubters, cynics, skeptics, is is to keep your heart open. You've got to land at that place where you go, okay, am I really interested and knowing the truth here am i really interested and if your heart is open and you really want to know if god exists and christianity is true he'll show you if you want him to and so my challenge to the skeptic to the cynic the unbeliever those questioning in the room is to set aside all the preconceptions that you've got whether that's preconceptions you've got from parents from teachers in your high school from university professors to set those preconceptions aside um and to open up your heart and mind to the possibility that there might be another way. And, and look at this series as if you've been summoned to jury duty. And you're being asked to be a juror as we look at Christianity, as we look at the existence of God. And if, if you were on a jury, you'd be asked to be open-minded, to draw conclusions based on the weight of all the evidence rather than your preconceived ideas and whims. So my challenge to you is, is to keep your heart open, to let the evidence that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks, to let that evidence speak for itself. And if you're, if you're here in the room, you're a believer, I, I challenge you to, to be grabbing a hold of this. Um, grab a pen and paper. Um, typically, my preaching style is more to the heart. This is going to be a, a, a sermon series that's going to actually be very intellectual, speaking more to the mind. Grab your pen and paper, be writing stuff down, so that when when someone asks, when someone begins to poke holes in your Christianity, you will be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. And as we do, I believe that God is going to make himself known. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are okay with our questions. You're okay with, with doubts. You're okay with us wanting to know more. God, and I just, I love this story of Thomas and just the, the posture that you have, this, this gracious, gentle, loving posture that you have and the, that the disciples have. And Father, I pray that, that Lord, um, we would be a church that God is okay with people asking questions, that we wouldn't be the defensive people, that God get our back up when someone has a different opinion or, or, it, or argues something that we have just have grabbed a hold of, God, with all of our heart and soul. May we be a people, God, that just has a gentle, respectful, and and, um, knowledgeable, God, uh, response, God, to people's questions. And Lord, I pray, God, for anybody in the room today that has doubts and questions. Lord, I pray that, Jesus, you would would reveal yourself. I also pray, God, that, that they would have the courage to pray that simple prayer. God, if you're real, would you please show me? And Jesus, I want to pray that you would just be revealing yourself to us, making yourself known in a very powerful way. I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.